You've tuned into the Soundcast Stereo. I'm Christopher Coleman. I'm on Channel One. And I'm Eric Woods, and I'm on Channel Two. Soundcast Stereo episodes are two channel 30 minute conversations focused on a single topic from the world of film, television, or video game soundtracks. This is a listener reaction episode where we feature your emails, your voicemails, and your social media responses to one of our recent episodes. You can find all the episodes of the Soundcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Google Play slash their podcast section. You can send us your feedback if you want to be on a reaction show to our email address at soundcastattractsounds.com. You can leave us a voicemail on our SpeakPipe widget on our site or our most popular or my favorite, maybe it's not the most popular, but my favorite is on Twitter at TrackSounds or also we're on Facebook. Today is Wednesday, February 8th. Happy birthday, John Williams, 2017. And this is our third reaction episode where Chris and I read some of your reactions to last week's episode called Composer Dominance. Composer Dominance. People liked that. They did. That word. <laughs> I don't think they understood it until they actually heard the show, though. Which yeah, is good. Which is good. Yeah, hopefully it created a little intrigue. Like, what the heck is Composer Dominance? Mm-hmm. I want to I hear about that. Um, so we've gotten some interesting feedback to the show, and uh, which was last week's episode, episode 15. So we wanted to take some time to read some of those uh, wonderful pieces of feedback that you've given us and, and maybe respond in kind just a little bit. Um, so we've got four that we're going to handle today. And, and just to let you guys know, um, we're going to be doing these reaction episodes fairly frequently so you can respond at any time to any episode just let us know what you're responding to specifically please let us know which episode so we can maybe refresh our own memories on what the heck we were talking about so we understand your reactions to our comments um and if you're doing it on twitter what will help is if you hashtag it with sound soundcast stereo that will help us find um your comments a lot faster so it's an open it's an open invitation for you to respond and react to anything that uh, strikes your fancy or gets your goat or whatever other sort of analogy you want to put there <laughs> that gets some kind of reaction out of you. We'd love to hear back from you. So tonight we're going to jump right in uh, and get into some of your, your feedback. And I'm going to start us off um, with Thomas Medina's post that he did. He posted on Twitter, which linked to his blog. We will put the link to his blog post um, in the show notes if you want to read it in full. Uh, and just so you know, and he says so in his in his post that you know he does work, um, has done written reviews, and has been on the Soundcast himself in, in times past. Um, so this is what he said uh, in essence. Um, he says some very complimentary things about the show, um, but he says, uh, sure, Giacchino has his fair share of critics, but on the whole, he is a champion for many classic uh, film music fans. I mean, his music is clearly Williams-esque, even when he isn't charged with mimicking Williams, which, granted, happens fairly often, and who doesn't love uh, former composer king John Williams? Um, I highlight that particular part in his post because, um, well, one thing really jumped out at me, and he's calling... John Williams, the former composer king, which is hard for me to stomach, especially mm-hmm. on his birthday. Um, <laughs> I still kind of consider him the king. Yeah, he's, he's st- as long as he's alive and writing, I still think he's the king. Yeah. Um, and as much as Giacchino is influenced by Williams, um, I don't think about Williams's music much when I hear Giacchino now. I used to back in the day when he was doing more video game stuff, but Today, I don't. I mean, granted, Rogue One, that's intentional. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, I don't think about John Williams when I hear Giacchino anymore. Do you? No. Used to. That's one of the reasons yeah. why I fell in love with his music. And yeah. we might have discussed this on an earlier episode when when I saw Medal of Honor. It blew my mind because I thought, wow, here's a guy who's writing in a style that, that I grew yeah. up with. But um, it was lost when his style changed and it was on he did that on purpose he knew oh, that yeah. he needed to expand his palette and and kind of write in his own voice without having to be compared by john williams and you know what some people honestly hated that they want him to write in that uh in that harmonic language 
uh, for lack of a better word. And uh, sure, some of that might come out in some of his scores. You might hear the influence of John Williams, but there's a ton of Mancini. There's tons of John Barry. There's tons of Bernard Herrmann. Um, he's all over the map, and, and his you can tell that the guy's a fan of of not just um, of movies, but of film music as well. He's done his, he's done his homework. He, and, um, but yeah, he's always, he's, he's, he's trying hard to establish his own voice. So like you said, Rogue One is about as close to John Williams. He's come since his video game days. Absolutely. And he goes on, he talks a little bit about Rogue One. Um, Thomas Medina says he nailed Rogue One, but it doesn't even matter because his best Star Wars score was 2015's Jupiter Ascending, one of my favorite soundtracks ever. And I had to read that part because I kind of agree with him. Yeah. I mean, Jupiter Ascending is a far superior score to yes. Rogue One, in my opinion. I agree. And it is one of one of my favorite, probably is my favorite of his uh, in terms of film scores. Um, and when you think about it, man, you know, I, I I went once I read that I went back and just listened to Jupiter Ascending again. Not that I haven't listened to it countless times, but I started. I closed my eyes and I started playing Star Wars scenes to yeah. it, and it's like, man, this would have made a really great Star Wars score. And I think had he had the time, mm-hmm. we would have got a, we would have received something more along this line. Yeah. You know, especially that that huge anthemic open for Jupiter Ascending and mm-hmm. this first suite that he has. Mm-hmm. If that was the Rogue One um, main theme or oh, yeah. fanfare or something, it would have been fantastic. I agree. It would have been awesome. Yeah. So I just wanted to pull that one particular quote out of his response because it really it really sent me on a little trip of back to Jupiter Ascending and and thinking, man, this is, this is what he can do when he's given enough time and plenty of leeway, which the Wachowskis gave him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was the best part about it is, you know, him writing. I love that movie and oh, I keep saying it. Oh, do you I really? Die. Do you really? I do. I, oh, I it's can't. so funny. It's so <laughs> good. It's, it's so, so bad that it's good. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like, I just, I just like, I'm on for the ride. It doesn't make any sense. It's like just weird. And I just love it. It's just like, whatever, dude, throw every kind of, alien cliche that has ever been in Hollywood all into one movie. And I'm like, okay, I, whatever you say, Wachowskis, I'm with you for this ride. <laughs> I, I got, I, it took me about three or four attempts to get through the entire thing. I did it in parts. And uh, I think once the bees started, they started explaining stuff about bees. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll stop right now and I'll come back to you later. But Jaquino didn't press for sure. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's uh, like I said, what a unique um, experience for Giacchino, you know, uh, being allowed to write 40, 50 minutes of music beforehand. And then the directors would go back and they were inspired by the music and they would direct mm-hmm. to, 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 to the music and, and format scenes because of the music. And it's just, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. What a, what a yeah. Very, it's just, I wish the film was better, but it's still, what a very <laughs> unique movie. I mean, nobody's going to talk about that. That's the other thing. Nobody's going to talk about how unique that experience was and how unique this film. I mean, imagine, imagine if it was really great. That's all they'd be mm. talking about. They'd be talking mm-hmm. about Giacchino's, um, you know, work beforehand. So it's true. Yeah, it's very true. Well, I'll just finish out with uh, this from from his post. You can read the whole thing on his uh, on his blog. Again, the link will be in the in the show notes. Um, he says, furthermore, thanks to Rogue One, Giacchino is now one of the very few composers who have a, who have scored a Star Wars film. Yes, I agree with that. And whether you like the score or not, personally, I love it. He is now officially a household name because of it. Is he? No, I don't think so. I don't not either. Yet. No, I don't think he's I, there yet. I. You know, it's. I don't think everybody knows who he is. I'm pretty sure the Pixar <laughs> Disney fans know who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether they know how to pronounce his name or not, but I'm pretty sure no. they'd, they'd be able to. They, he's done so much in that, or for that company, um, yeah. and now he's in Star Wars. Um, yeah, he's on his way to for be sure. a household name for sure. He's definitely in that trajectory, but he's not. He's not there yet. In my opinion, he's not. If I said his name to any of my family members, they'd just look at me with a blank look. <laughs> they would have no idea. 
I might be contradicting myself though, because I'm not sure what my reaction was about the same topic maybe four shows ago. So um, did we talk about him? As I think a household we talked name? about. I think we talked about briefly about composers being household names or something. I, I I recall it coming up at some point, and I might have made mention that maybe Giacchino is is there or getting there, and I probably brought up the same point about Pixar and. And Disney, mm, and, but, well, the listeners um, will straighten He's close. You're right. I think I think he's close. But mm-hmm. if we go back and I said something different, then I apologize. But right now, I think he's close. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, yeah. So Thomas Medina definitely a Jacino fan, and um, is glad that um, that Jacino is on the rise and kind of and kind of dominating right now. Mm-hmm. So Thomas, thank you for your for writing a whole post and your complimentary words about the show and all of that. We we appreciate it and um, we look forward to hearing more from you and other reactions. Um, so Eric, why don't you go to the next one? Sure, we got a short one here and it kind of takes the topic off in a in a in a in a different. Uh, well, it's actually really different. I don't think this has anything to do with composer dominance, um, more so maybe the influence of the composer. So this comes from Isaac Atta one, and he was t- asking us what our, I guess our Mount Rushmore of composers would be the four composers that you would choose to have mm-hmm. or be enshrined on Mount Rushmore. If there was such a thing for composers. So I chose I, I thought I, I would do two sections. I picked the mm-hmm. most important or most influential and then my own favorites. So my most important, I would say, is Max Steiner, the father of film music. Then mm-hmm. there's Bernard Herrmann, which pretty much turned film music, um, you know, on its head. Mm-hmm. And then there was John Williams, of course, due to Star Wars, and then a course there's Hans Zimmer who has just done something completely and utterly different than anybody that came before him however mm-hmm. my favorites would be John Williams uh, Jerry Goldsmith James Horner and Franz Waxman mm, interesting Franz Waxman um, yeah that's that's a really tough question to ask especially to just boil it down to four you are clever and were able to to, to split it up in, into two different ways. If I had to just pick four, for me personally, it's kind of a combination of both who I think is important and also who I who's just a favorite. Um, so it's kind of not really a co- not really a combination of yours, but it has elements of both of yours. I said John Williams, of course. I put Jerry Goldsmith, um, Bernard Herrmann, and Hans Zimmer. With an asterisk on the side of my Mount Rushmore, there on the side, literally on the side of the hill, there would be um, like a carving in the side that said um, something to the effect of, "Had James Horner um, not passed away prematurely, I think at the end of his career, I, that he would have been on this mountain." I don't know in place of whom, maybe Goldsmith, I'm not sure, but he would be there instead of someone else. Um, You know, he was still a fairly young guy. I mean, he had had many years left of composing in front of him. Mm -hmm. And I think had he been able to finish out that career in, you know, 20 years, 30 years, however long, I think he he would have been on that Mount Rushmore for me. Um, But as it stands, I did say I committed to Williams, Goldsmith, Herman, and, uh, and Zimmer. Um, and that's a tough one though. So we'd love to know, I'd love to know what our, what our listeners, yeah. who they'd put on their Mount Rushmore is. That's a really, really difficult question. Yeah. You really do have uh, to think about it for sure. Yeah. It's, it's not one you can just kind of slap out there. And I had so many names in and out, in and out. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going with the ones that I think are there right now and then done. Um, cause it was just, it was excruciating. Mm-hmm. So maybe that'll be a show of itself some, some other time. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks Isaac for that one. Cause that, that really kind of chewed our brains for a little bit. Have you ever answered that question before? Uh, always my favorites. Um, but never, uh, yeah, you know what? I, I, I was actually pretty prepared for it. Cause uh, again, I, I, I know who's important and, and yeah. I know why they are important and I've done enough right. reading and research and listening to know, um, there, there could be cases made for um some other people like um maybe vangelis and the mm-hmm. way that he changed things but i just think that when you think about think about the history of film music and, and who made the the most impact and the most changes 
Um, that's that's why I picked the four I did for my most important. But of course, there's always going to be my favorites that I that I'll just like. I grew up with Williams Horner and Goldsmith um, ever since I started collecting and listening, and it was Franz Waxman um, and Charles Gerhardt as well. But it was his. It was Gerhardt's Waxman album that turned me on to the Golden Age, and so mm, that's why okay. Waxman became my favorite. And he also has a very similar sound, um, yeah. a more uh, John Williams esque sound, and so that's why I think I um, attached myself to him more so than anybody else in the Golden Age. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I had Bernstein on there for a while, um, it, and I just it was it was just so tough. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just like who do I take off if I put Bernstein in right. there? Um, it's it just just super difficult but you know they have that i'm glad it's over that whole fave seven kind of thing that was going on for a while but four is a heck of a lot harder than seven yes that's for sure yes um so uh, thanks isaac for that we got another uh tweet just a little while ago before we started recording and we're gonna slide that question in uh from ben whiting on uh twitter and he asked an interesting question about episode 15 he was he said i'm wondering how to find dominance it's not just quantity but film prominence right and i really don't know how to answer that because how do you define prominence like high profile film um what does that actually actually mean i think in our context of discussion uh, last week we were really talking about quantity um because we, I went, we went through all those quote unquote statistics uh, for how many scores they had, feature film scores they had done. Um, Michael Giacchino, John Williams, Hans Zimmer, uh, Henry Jackman in X amount of time. So we really were kind of talking about quantity, but they weren't like just indie films or you know they were all fairly substantial projects uh, that are a part of the the count that I did. So. To answer the question, it's it, I wasn't intentionally looking for high-profile sort of films, but really just counting how many they did. So um, it's domin- just domination in the amount of work that these composers have done within a specific amount of time. Do you know how to define prominence anyway? Any no, other way? No, I think it's 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 one and the same. I mean, they're going to keep on. I think you need high-profile projects to keep yourself going. Um, although mm-hmm. I'm sure there's composers out there that are writing 20 scores a year and they're making nothing on it, but we're not yeah. going to count those. Um, so, I mean, to be successful in this business, you are of course going to be hired and in, in hired time and time again. And so, yeah. um, a, you know, I would say that eventually you're going to get yourself a blockbuster and, uh, people are going to recognize you because of that. And, uh, so I think, you know, quantity and 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 box office numbers um they're pretty much one and the same and I, I maybe there's somebody out there that can correct me if i'm wrong but it's just like off the top of my head i would think that both of them sort of mean the same thing but it is interesting it'd be interesting to to see how much money you know hans zimmer has helped make for uh jerry bruckheimer or sure. back in you know the days when john williams was scoring every George Lucas and Steven Spielberg production, you know, just how mm-hmm. much money. I mean, for the longest time, John Williams was a part of what I think, or maybe that was Harrison Ford, but it was like eight of the 10 biggest films of all time. Wow. And John I Williams had, that had John scored Williams. that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, there was a time he was the king, like the box office king as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, any, I mean, I think even like the BMI awards that they hand out every year is, is not um, based on, uh, the music quality it's it's box office numbers so mm-hmm. i mean anybody could just have a surprise hit and might have written the worst score ever but hey here's an award for you because the film made money and you you know sure. contributed to that so um yeah i think it's yeah. like i said one and the same he he talks about that he kind of went on to say i think the box office numbers for films a composer has worked uh would be an interesting angle yeah that that would be um uh that might be something we can we can look at um, to see who scored the the biggest ones over time. I think I think we've kind of covered them, um, incidentally, at least in the last over the last forty years. Anyway, I think we've probably hit the guys who've probably scored the most, the highest box office. I'm trying to think. Well, you've got some Avengers stuff. Mm-hmm. Sylvester would have been attached to that, and Back to the Future, and um, Forrest Gump, and 
he might be one that's in there when you start adding box office up. Maybe we'll do that just yeah. for fun. We'll 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 add some box office up and see see who's scored the most, earned the most money through that. Um, yeah. So thanks, Ben Whiting, for for that. Hopefully, it brought some clarity to what we were talking about last week. And um, if not. You can react again, and we'll respond the same way again. <laughs> um, um, so, <clears throat> where are we? Have one more left? Yeah, and I think we got a we got enough time to cover all of this. So, uh, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I think uh, we we could call her maybe the soundtracks uh, track sound super fan, uh, soundcast stereo super fan, uh, Tiffany yeah. Curly Cello Mama. Always great <laughs> to hear from her. That's an awesome Absolutely. awesome handle, though. By the way. <laughs> That is amazing. Uh, so she uh, she wrote in and uh, you know praised us, um, well, de- deservingly so, of course. I mean, such a great I job. Mean, how could you not? I know. Um, <laughs> so I praise us all the time, and so I just expect everyone else to. <laughs> so she uh, goes on to say. I honestly see very little difference between Williams and his reusing of a particular style and his inspiring a generation and Hans Zimmer. I also don't see why people wring their hands over Zimmer using the same style and mechanisms, but don't see Williams doing it. I love 70s and 80s Williams, but to me, there's just as much tonal stylistic similarity between Star Wars and E.T., etc. as there is between Interstellar and Inception. Maybe it has to do with composers working continuously with one director and it leading to a continuity of tone. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, uh, you know, it. my my gut reaction was like, well, no, there was nothing similar uh, between Williams and, and Zimmer in their inspiring generation. But maybe they're obviously stylistically not at all. But maybe there is some some maybe there's some similarity there uh, uh, maybe uh, and it's hard because i can only react to how i only know how williams music affected me at that time when i was that age and how zimmer music affected me at that time when i was at the older age and, and they were very different um just very different uh, the very different emotions attached to mm-hmm. inspiring maybe in some ways both of them but um just by the nature of John Williams' music i think it is inherently more inspiring because he was trying to write inspiring uplifting type of music many at, for many at many times whereas zimmer maybe not so much yeah i think um i mean stylistically they couldn't be more different um mm-hmm. But I think with Williams, it was, you know, kind of reaching back into film's past and bringing that back into uh, 70s and 80s and at that time modern film. And you're right, he was bringing a different sensibility, um, still writing emotional music, and Zimmer writes emotional music. I think the biggest difference is that, you know, Williams is inspiring composers who are looking to write a classical symphonic score. Um, whereas Zimmer is able to touch the people who might not be thinking of film music, but is now going to be interested in it because it is cool. Mm-hmm. It's something they could do. They hear a guitar, rock guitar, or a drum kit, or a bass, or something that is more pop. And they're like, well, you know what? I can do that, and I can do that at home. And, of course, we've mentioned it with the uh, advancement of technology. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for them to go back home and, you know, do a cover of Pirates of the Caribbean or mm-hmm. smatter together some sounds and make something that sounds like Hans Zimmer where, you know, anybody wanting to be John Williams. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> years and years of study so and hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars to get 100 players to play your music. Right. So I think the big that that's the biggest difference and 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 why Zimmer's influence is astronomical. It's amazing. I think he has a bigger influence. I think he might be the biggest influence of all time. Hmm. Um that's a good point. just because it it's accessible right now 
to mm-hmm. to create those sounds and and get yourself in and of course uh you know Zimmer being such a a welcoming open person that yeah hopefully again he's instilled that on the people that he's worked with that you know he you can use some help from these people and uh and give them credit and and uh yeah it's their way in so yeah. again you don't really need to go to school for all the for years and years and years and and learn yeah. about this stuff so yeah what do you think about the part where she says um uh it's the second part of that. I don't see why people wring their hands over Zimmer using the same style and mechanisms but don't see Williams doing it. Um, and she compares, you know, Star Wars to E.T. as Interstellar is to Inception. Um, yeah, I don't hear people getting too upset about, you know, Williams doing the things that he does, like the booms and the, you know, those, For sure. those things all the time. And people don't, at least I haven't seen too many people get upset about those things. Um, maybe because they're, a much smaller part of the of the whole in each score um, than let's say the Horn of Doom is so in your face and so prominent that it can become more irritating because it's so prominent. It's, it, it can be the core of the score or or the or the foundation of the score. And if you do that multiple times, it's kind of like, come on, mm-hmm. as opposed to just an accent that he same kind of accents that he uses from score to score. Um, I, I guess Star Wars and ET sound similar. I, I mean, you know, it's Williams, but I never really thought of them. You know, I never really thought of there being a whole lot of crossover between the two. Um, inter- even Interstellar and Inception, I don't think they sound all that much alike. No, um, no. The instrumentation is very, very different. Yeah. Um, so maybe in. You know, Inception, Dark Knight. Okay, we can talk that, but I think Inter- Interstellar is, is pretty unique in the mm-hmm. in his portfolio of scores. Yeah. I don't know what you think about. No, that. I agree, and I I think she has a point. She does have a point. I think it's all it's all very subjective as well. I mean, whether you you are can, um, you know, you can handle the orchestral music, and and that's something that you like. Then I guess maybe you're more forgiving for things sounding similar. All those all those Williams in the seventies and eighties. I mean, you can go through Jaws to even the river, and you'd have a hard time. You you hear John Williams's voice, and that's mm-hmm. totally different. But though he'd write striking new themes for different instruments, his action music wasn't always the same. Um, mm-hmm. He would, uh, I mean, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark action music isn't as, let's say, as busy as the Battle of Hoth for Empire Strikes Back, and those are written a year apart. Yeah. Um, then he goes on and does Heartbeeps, or he does something like Dracula, and, uh, you know, he does something a little bit more uh, modern in the river, and, you know, Temple of Doom is a total different beast from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So mm-hmm. he was able to use his own voice, but still stylistically, the way that he wrote the notes and using rhythms and harmony and whatnot was able to give those films a distinct sound. And again, whether it was through the way that he was writing the music or through uh, a distinct, unique theme. Um, Zimmer, uh, you're right. The, the guy loves to experiment. I don't see the similarities between Interstellar and Inception, and maybe that's just something, you know, Tiffany came up with off the top of her head. But, you know, you can get, uh, uh, you know, like for me, and uh, admittedly the the ostinato the string ostinato might be one of the most irritating things i hear in his music and in modern music and i don't think mm-hmm. you can really blame hans zimmer for that i'd say you go to john powell and his work in in the born series for that sort of mm-hmm. the modern uh sound of um uh, of action of film music um for zimmer i think what bothers me the most is his heavy use of layered synthesizers over what is obviously a real orchestra and that mm-hmm. just kind of cheapens the sound for me. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You don't need to do that. But it's the ostinato that bothers me. You're right. The Horn of Doom just bugs the crap out of me. And it's in every trailer now. And it's annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I don't think Zimmer's the one that is responsible for that. And again, we've discussed this before. Zimmer changes his sound. He does. Yeah. Very much so. You yeah. can't say that his scores to Batman are the same as his score to Spider-Man. 
Right. And um, so it's just the other composers that are mimicking his sound, which is now all over the place, which I think is what's becoming annoying is that they are just mimicking him and not um, expanding or doing their yeah. own thing with that sound. Yeah. Yeah. And she makes a good point with, you know, maybe it has to do with composers working continuously with one director and leading to a continuity of tone. Uh, yeah, sure. But even if you take Zimmer and um, Nolan, you know, his sound has evolved with, with Nolan. You know, starting was Inception before Batman. No, Batman Begins was first, then Inception, then Dark Knight, then... Did they do something together between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises? Uh, I can't recall. Um. Yeah. So then, okay. Let's say Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Then Interstellar. You know, it, getting to Interstellar, you listen to um, Batman Begins, and you mm-hmm. listen to Interstellar. There's a there's a whole lot of travel there. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with even with Spielberg and and Williams, I oh, mean, yeah. you, you you travel that thing, and you look at the last thing they did, BFG. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not the best one to take, but that's the last thing they did. And you go all the way back to what Sugarland Express. Yes, it, there's a whole lot of distance traveled in that. You know, really? um, a whole lot of distance traveled there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, clearly a director and a composer get into a groove, and they can work quickly together, as she points out later in her in her uh, in her email. So, yeah, I don't know. That's what I think about that. Yeah, no, it, it it totally makes sense. Um, so let's move on to her yeah. next point. Um, so she continues in saying, as far as particular composers being overused over and over again to their saturation points, I think there are a few factors. So she gives <laughs> us a bunch. A, you want to just stop and like, you know, uh, comment yeah, on each one and we'll just kind of go yeah. through here. Okay, so A. Yep. A tried and true composer holds little in the way of surprises when it comes to work style or what they deliver in the past. I think Giacchino has made a name for himself in being able to swoop in and save a project as well as delivering on time. What do you think about that? Mm, well, let me deal with the second part first. I know you know the what Giacchino did for Rogue One has is, the story behind it is he came in four and a half weeks, boom, done. Star Wars score, but has he really jumped in to save a lot of projects? I I was trying to think was there another. <laughs> I can't think of another time he's done that. To be honest, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, he works with a lot of uh, friends, people he respects, mm-hmm. and he really has a choice of project. So I don't think they're the only. I maybe she's talking about replacing, um, you know, like Patrick Doyle on the Planet of the Apes series, and who knows whether he was... Did he really uh, replace him? Then that's it. That's all I'm saying is that I don't know whether Doyle was oh, actually chosen, but he's following him rather than replacing yeah. him. You know, uh, He's now taking the reins of, of the Marvel f- movie franchises. And, well, the and, wording she uses is you know, swoop in and save. So yeah, that and the only time I can think about that recently was Danny Elfman with... Uh, with the Avengers, that's the yeah. only time really where I've heard someone actually even use the word save a project. Yeah. So um, I'm yeah. not really sure Giacchino is is doing that. Um, it's certainly not his M.O. I mean, he's done it with a super prominent uh, title, but, you know, I just couldn't think of any other time that he's done something like that. Okay, so part B it's more cost effective in that the director and composer have worked together before and have developed a dialogue and can more effectively communicate. Whereas it would take twice as long with a new composer and directors are usually very under the gun to get it done as quickly as they can. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I think, I think that's why, and again, she's answering or giving her factors on why particular composers are being used over and over again. Um, that makes sense. I mean, working with the same director as we kind of alluded to earlier, it's it's shorthand, and you can work more efficiently and, and faster, and you know the sound you're going to get essentially. It's kind of interesting though to, you know, back in I'm, I know the first movie that I thought of where where a, a director kept the same composer was the Die Hard series. You know, John McTiernan had worked on the first one, but then mm, Rennie Harlan came Kamen. in and said, you know, what, we're going to still use Cayman, and he didn't, decided not to use his own composer. So. 
Hmm. Um, you know, I guess different sensibilities and different point of views so. there. Um, but yeah, that's that. Wow. I just, I honestly just thought about that. So I'm, I'm a little like, wow, how do I, uh, how do I process that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, it, it makes sense though. Yeah. Right. I mean, it would be like, you know, ignoring, you know, doing a star Wars movie. It's like JJ Abrams, not asking John Williams to do the force awakens and mm-hmm. then going with Giacchino because he's worked with Giacchino before. And, uh, that would make <laughs> would you sense. Been surprised because at that, uh, no, I absolutely would not be surprised. That I was actually more surprised that he went for John Williams. I was too. And and Giacchino said, "Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I, I want to watch this movie with Williams's score." So mm-hmm. no, she's. I mean, she's right. I mean, a composer <laughs> and director working together, uh, you know, for for years, absolutely, they're just going to be, you know, on a whole other level than, um, let's say, you know, composer uh, director X and composer Y working for the very first time. So right. that doesn't make sense. So yeah. C, a director knows exactly what they want and have a particular sound in mind that they've heard before. Yeah, we want that uneven meter thing you do. Crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> I would, yeah, that makes sense too. Um, I do think about Rogue One though and think about Gareth Edwards. He brought along the guy he knew, Alexander Dupla, but... That didn't work out in the long run. I don't. I don't. I don't think it was because, in the speculation, I don't think it was because Duplat wasn't going to deliver what Edwards thought he was going to deliver. I think it wasn't what some other mm. uh, leadership and of the, the think tank and the people in control there was expecting for a Star Wars film. Um, so it's interesting that yeah, even if the director and again, I'm just totally speculating, but I bet he knew what. Dipla could deliver for him. Uh, he did Godzilla. He knew that he could go big like that, but it wasn't Star Warsy enough. Is is my guess. And even though that was the, would have been the director's choice, it wasn't the choice of some others. I don't know. What do you think? I wonder if those two are going to work together again. I wonder Dupla? if it's going to yeah, Desplat and uh, and and Edwards. I wonder if it's going to be yeah. like uh, uh, you know Jackson and and Shore working together again after their. Mm. Um, issue with King Kong. I guess that'll they'll tell a lot as to whether they really did have a, a tiff and that's why Desplat mm-hmm. was let go because I, again, still don't believe that there was a scheduling conflict because when's the last wow. time we heard new music from uh, Alexandre Desplat? That's true. Um, so <laughs> um, I'm sure there was something there and someone didn't want to do something and um, and and maybe Giacchino was just going to be the yes man. This time, and he's like, "Yeah, absolutely, I'm going to do it that way for sure." Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, to the point where, yeah, directors—I mean, directors don't know exactly know what they want. I mean, they—they they want they know some some of them know exist, some of them know do, and some of them just they're like they can't explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sure, they have a, a specific sound in mind, and so that's why a collaboration like Williams and Spielberg is so important. That's why working together. Um, you know, two, three, four, or five times is is so important because you, you just get that rapport and and you're able to just kind of click and and just feed off each other and understand your your lingo and what you have to say. So, sure, yeah, very important. Uh, point D. It's gotten to the point where their names sell soundtracks. I don't believe that. I I don't. Other than John Williams and Hans Zimmer, I don't know how many names sell soundtracks to be honest composer names like someone goes and see sees a oh that composer did that score i didn't see the movie or play the game but i'm buying it because that name is on it i don't know how often that unless the hardcore for the film music fans yeah but outside of that i don't know but it could also be a turnoff though for the hardcore fans you know for instance like planet earth two that just came out Zimmer wrote a theme mm. and that's about it but you know what his right. name is plastered all over it he's holding a lot of hands lately <clears throat> even with even established composers like Lauren Bell for crying out loud it was just great to see his name solo on that Lego Batman album yeah, instead of having he does sorry go no ahead. go ahead I was gonna say he's he you know he's actually another stealthily dominant composer mm-hmm, for sure a lot of stuff in the last two years I need to look that up but um, a lot of times it is connected with Zimmer, but he's done a lot of small, really small films on his own, uh, small documentaries, all kinds of projects. So, yeah, but it is nice to see his name stand alone. 
but does it bother you to see that, let's say, even Henry Jackman's writing something, but it's got to have big, bold letters of produced by Hans Zimmer on it? I mean, I don't think it's going to sell any more soundtracks. I honestly don't think that, I mean, they're it marketing. Must, but is that really like, oh man, we're going to sell an extra hundred because Zimmer's name is on it? Yeah, I maybe. I, I mean, people know Zimmer, you know, the more people, Zimmer is much more of a household name than Giacchino is at this point in time. Um, in certain generations. Yes. I think our generation and down, I think he's more of a household, Zimmer's a household name. Um and I, and maybe maybe it sells. I, I mean, how many pe- just common folks just go out and buy a soundtrack, a score? No, I don't think it happens at all. I mean, they have to really love a movie and just be like, man, that music was so good. I, you know, I can see like a hardcore like Batman fan, Dark Knight fan. They see the movie and like, man, I gotta have that score it, like that. But outside of that kind of experience, I don't see it happening all that often and then they see the name and they're like, oh it's that guy or that woman I'm gonna get that score I, I don't know I, I don't know they try to make it a Zimmer sell but or maybe it's really to sell it to the the studio and to the directors to say you know you can have you can have Zimmer yeah he's gonna write the theme but yeah. Lauren Balfe's gonna do the score, and it's just a part of the contract that okay, well, Zimmer's sure. name has to be on the sound, you know, headline the soundtrack yeah. itself. I think that's where it's. I think you're you nailed the head. Um, I, I think the yeah, and it goes back to Zimmer always giving credit, always giving credit to his additional composers, mm-hmm. and I think that you know, there's there's some projects like Interstellar where he's like, no, I. I did this all by myself, but mm-hmm. there's other projects where for sure he's going to give credit because that's just the, the type of guy he is. But you're yeah. right. I'm pretty sure that's like, you know what? We, we don't really trust Julian not on our, yeah. on our new animation projects. But you know, if Hans Zimmer can hold his hand and kind of look over his shoulder while he's doing it, um, mm-hmm. that would help us uh, immensely. So again, it's yeah. a trust, it's trust, total trust from, from the producers or the studio all the way down to, to composers. It's just amazing how it seems like composers have so much power <laughs> over how well a, how well a film's yeah. going to do, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really bizarre. It's yeah. really bizarre. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know what I'm really interested in, in hearing, and maybe some of the listeners out there um, could, could tweet in about this. I mean, if you see John Williams' name, let's say you see John Williams' name on a, on a soundtrack, and it says main theme by John Williams, but you know, written by Kevin Casca, the rest of the score written by Kevin Casca. Would mm. you be more inclined to buy that album if it, because it says John Williams or, you know, even if it was a Kevin Casca, Casca album, would you still buy it? Or would you be more inclined mm. to say, Hey, you know what? John Williams's name is on that. I'm going to pick that one up. I'd be interested think, to hear from the yeah, listeners. Yeah, that would be, I, I think I would be, if I knew nothing about the project itself and I just saw it and I was like, Oh, John Williams wrote a theme for that. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued. You know, I would be more in, more interested um than if his name wasn't on it. I mean, I don't know Kim Koska that well. So, right. but if that's the scenario and you don't know the name of the other person, then it's certainly going to at least grab your attention for a second. It's like, "Oh, the John Williams theme. I want to hear what that is." Yeah. You know. That's fair. Yeah. Okay, Tiffany's last point as to uh, why composers are being used over and over again. Uh, her E point is, I think some composers are just pleasant to work with. Anytime I hear a director talk about working with Michael Giacchino, they rave about him personally. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's true. But you know, when I first read that, my first thought was, um, Jim Cameron and James Horner, (laughs) they did (laughs) not get along uh, much at all. And their collaborations have produced fantastic films and fantastic scores. Aliens being the first among them, right? And yep. he had what three weeks, six weeks, some some oh, insanely was, yeah. short amount of time, yes. and produces uh, was nominated at least for an Oscar, um, and one of the most used trailer tracks of all time, you know. And they had, they had, they were. It was very contentious. Um, 
so those are the two that first come to my mind. And like, well, yeah, they can be pleasant to work with, but it doesn't always yield the greatest results. Or, or I should say, because they don't, because the composer may not be the nicest or they may not get along, doesn't mean it won't yield great results. I guess that's the way I should say it. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I can think of, um, you know, like you look at uh, Shai Mullen and, and Howard. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's the films are getting panned, but, you know, Howard is able to do, um, you know, a lot of great work. And it, you would think that he'd still be on board working with Shai Mullen while he kind of goes <laughs> through this new phase of his, his film career, but he just can't afford him. <laughs> he just mm-hmm. can't. Well, yeah. And if he's and that's movies un- for Blumhouse. Right, he can't afford them. And that's unfortunate because I'm wondering if again, if Spielberg went down that route early in his career, where oh my God, I've got to pick my career back up and I got to make these indie movies. Uh, what would John Williams say? Would he say, you know mm. what, cut my rate and I will help you. I will help you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think, and you know what, I know Jacino would do this. Giacchino wrote the score to Sky High because it was written for a buddy of his. Mm-hmm. That was the director was his friend, and so yeah. he did it. Um, he would he would do early on, from what I remember in the discussions I had with him, he would do any project, anything. If you even if you could only afford four players, if he liked the project and liked you, he would do it, mm-hmm. and. And that's why he did so many video game scores still after, while he was writing, you know, big film scores like The Incredibles. He was still working in video games. Um, he's done with video games now because he's just too darn busy, but yeah. he surrounded himself with people that he likes. And yeah. that helps not only the filmmaker, but it helps him and it inspires him. And that's why he does so many projects. That's why he says yes to so many projects because he knows that working on a Pixar film is going to be great. Working on a film with whomever else he's worked with jj abrams absolutely um i'll be there for you um mm-hmm. so uh yeah for sure i mean you have to get along in this industry absolutely um and but do you i've really th- that's why i brought up horner and, and cameron they did not get along they, they didn't get along and that ended it i mean they were never going to work together again i mean look how long it took them to work again um yeah. And then, you know, you look at how happy things turned out with Titanic and then they worked together again. I'm wondering yeah. what Brad Fidel did to James Cameron to not, you know, be working with uh, Cameron anymore. Um, true. So um, I, oh, it's, I think it's, man, it, it's, it's relationships. It's, it's, ah, uh, there's so much that goes into this that there's more than the, just composing music. <laughs> There's oh, so sure. much more, and um, I you've got to get along with so many people, and uh, you know it's and it's not just the directors, it's the producers, it's the studio, yeah, it's it's how well right. prepared you are, it's working with your orchestrators, working with I mean you've got to manage a team. I mean you think about the composers, mm-hmm. they're at the top, and then they've got to manage everybody, a hundred players. I mean, he, Chikino picks certain players because he likes them. He gets along with them. So yeah, yeah, it's very, relationships are such an important part in, in film scoring. It's something that doesn't necessarily get discussed a a lot. It's true. It's a good point. And, you know, since we're talking about Horner, you know, he was in the early mid nine or through the nineties, he was pretty dominant. I didn't count his, his projects up, but it was a lot. Oh yeah. There was one year he was doing 10 movies. It was yeah, crazy. It's insane. Um, but, you know, towards the end of his career, um, we didn't know it was the end of his career, but mm-hmm. uh, he was, you know, look what he did for um, The Magnificent Seven. I yeah. forget the director's name right now. It just slipped my mind. Um, what's his name? Anyway, you know, Antoine that, uh, Fuqua. Antoine Fuqua. Yes. Fuqua. Antoine Sorry, Fuqua. Yeah, he, he wrote that music for him. Yep. You know, um, I think he was, even though. He may have not have been the easiest to get along with for some. Maybe, you know, well, I don't think a lot of people get along with Jim Cameron in a lot of ways. But right. um, but he was, Horner was the type of guy who would who would write a score for an indie film and, you know, not make a penny or hardly make a penny right. on it just because he loved the film. Yes. And he wanted to contribute to it and help, you know, help bring that film to life. Um, and so, you know, 
I think that's why he was he could have been a lot busier than he was. But he's just like, man, I don't want to do a, another, you know, superhero or, another, you know, he just he just didn't. And so that's there's something to be said for that, too, to oh, have yeah. your standards. And but you can still be a pretty nice guy about it, even though even though you may have to turn some people away. You know, um, you may say yes to other people that bigger composers or A-list composers wouldn't give the time of day to potentially. Yeah, I mean, then that's what that's what you get with with being a, a veteran composer. I mean, with with Horner, he had more money than he knew what to do with, and so he could spend time yeah. flying his aircraft, and meanwhile, picking something like um, Wolf Totem, and yeah. saying, "I want to work on that because you know what? I I like that. I like that movie. I like the, I like the tone of that movie." Or doing something like Southpaw because he wanted to experiment in a different genre, or like mm-hmm. you said, Magnificent Seven writing the music because he wanted Fuqua to make the movie. It's so amazing that that was the inspiration behind that film. I and mean, we, I talked about it with Jupiter, Ascend- Jupiter Ascending, but really it was Horner. It was Horner's music that made him make the movie. It's amazing. It's <laughs> that's so incredible. And what a, and what a yeah. gift that was. And, and that's oh, the type yeah. of guy that James Horner was at the end of his life and, and or was going to be, I mean, imagine in the, in the last, you know, if he, he lived to be 80, the, the stuff he was going to work on. I mean, yeah. oh, my God, he had Avatar to look forward to. It would have been Oh, my gosh, so that would have taken amazing. the rest of his life. Right? <laughs> the, but he, you episodes. know what? But that's what's so great about it because he would have spent, again, another 16 months on it because uh, he yeah. could. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Oh, now, now I'm getting a little sad. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the intent. Let's get to our last point so we can feel better again. Sure. Uh, uh, Tiffany then uh, mentioned that <clears throat> she uh, brought up something on Twitter uh, about thinking about another hardworking composer, and that being Alexandre Desplat. Not only has he scored 50-ish movies between 2008 and 2016, he won an Oscar uh, against himself, no less. <laughs> And that's, yeah, yeah. he's busy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's busier than I thought. I didn't realize he'd done 50 plus um, uh, scores in, what, eight years? That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, I hadn't, I did not look him up to even count his. So you could call, if those are feature films only, uh, yeah, you can say he, he's become a dominant composer, I think. Does he qualify for you? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether he's like. I don't know. He's he's dominant, but he does such a wide range of of pictures, mm-hmm. and he's he's not just working in Hollywood. He's working elsewhere. He's going back to Europe. He's working for smaller films. He's working for large films. So, very wide variety of film scores and in very different tones. I mean, he'll work on a science fiction yeah. project, and all of a sudden it's rom- a, you know a romance, and then a drama. Um, yeah. So that's what's so great about Desplat. He's always doing something uh, different. And again, I think that he has. Uh, the freedom to do that sort of thing. He's can you pick and choose and, and do what he wants to do. And I think that, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe Hollywood was scaring him a bit because he's then he was now being incredibly successful because he was working on successful films, um, Godzilla, big blockbuster movies. And now he was going to do star Wars. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. lot of responsibility. Sure. So um, I'm wondering where Desplat was going to go after star Wars. I mean, he was still going to do another science fiction project, right. but um, what would have Star Wars brought to Desplat? Hmm, interesting. If he had been successful. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the question. That is the question. Uh, we will never know. I mean, I think the film he was going to score was a different film than we than we got. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, in the end. I think the film that we got, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been as good of a fit. Um, it's a better fit for a Giacchino in that case. This, the things they added and the things they changed. Yeah, I think it <coughs> it, it was much more in line with um, uh, Giacchino's style. So, yeah, it's we, it's sad that we won't know, but we'll see what um, Valerian and the Ten Thousand Cities, or whatever <laughs> it's called. Um, I'm so brings. looking forward to that. <laughs> it looks wait. great. It does. I mean, it looks. It reminds me of Jupiter Ascending <laughs> a little bit, yeah. and I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. But I think I think yeah. we can expect it to be weird and oh, weird yeah. on purpose, and we'll understand yeah. the tone right away because of who's making it, rather than oh, what in the world is going on in Jupiter Ascending? 
<laughs> Maybe there'll be a shared universe. That would be, that'd be quite what? amazing. <laughs> that would be insane. Oh, my God. Well, supposedly this story is, at least in part, is what ins- partially inspired Lucas for Star Wars. So, wow. Um, we'll, It'll be we'll fun. See. It'll be yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. I-, I hope... I hope he I hope he delivers my favorite display score there because yeah. I'm still waiting there I there I, there isn't a score of his that is like that I'm just super excited about and just I like a lot of his scores but none of them are just like oh this is the quintessential um, display score that I love and that I mm. tell everyone to listen to there really kind of isn't that yet for me. Yeah, the only so, one that I can think of is Birth, and that's back in 2004. That's the yeah, only that's, one I can think of going, hey, if you want to get the Splot style, uh, that's it. Yeah, I guess I used the wrong word, not quintessential, because, um, yeah, that is one that really sums him up. Yeah, I guess there's just none that, when I compare my favorite scores from other composers, and then I put my favorite score of his mm-hmm. alongside of those, it doesn't quite measure up. Yeah, he's my, one composer. In my own personal taste. Yeah, he's one composer I never reach for. Really, I never go. Hey, I'm in the mood for some for this lot. It not really. Like, he writes great music, competent mm-hmm. music, functional music. It's beautiful. I mean, the stuff that he writes is is outstanding. But even like even exciting scores like Rise of the Guardians for me, which yeah. I absolutely loved at the time, I never yeah. go back to it. I never do. Yeah. Um, and I've given Golden Compass <laughs> way too many chances for, to impress. <laughs> um, but you know, like I like. I remember, I remember really liking Birth right off the bat, and so that's probably the mm-hmm. only one where I'm like, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll go back to it. But like, he writes us, he writes so much. But you're right, there's not just one where I go, hmm, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's the one I got to go I back think to. The, the one I listen to the most of his is the Painted Veil. Um, I really mm-hmm. love that score a lot, and it's representative of more of the type of thing he was doing back in those days. I don't right. know if that's 2007, 2008. I forget exactly when that came out, but you know, the much more minimal. Uh, type of stuff that he mm-hmm. would do i i love that from him and when i need to listen to some minimal stuff you know i can go there and, and be completely satisfied but that's just not super often anyway but it's a good point she brings up he is one that at least is in the discussion because he does do oh, a whole heck of a lot of uh, of work or has anyway over the last eight or nine years so kudos on digging that one out for sure yeah well, any other thoughts from from uh, anything she said or any of the other ones? Uh, she just said, keep the chuckles coming, and we will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our heads are made for chuckles. Just chuckle heads. So. <laughs> no, thanks, Tiffany. Thank you. Curly Cello Mama. Keep 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 coming. Keep coming with those with those tweets. We love reading yeah. them. You're, you're yeah. like I said, super fan. Super fan. Yeah, Soundcast super fan. It. We appreciate um, her and all those who uh, we were able to read today. If we couldn't read yours, we apologize, but we do thank you for sending the emails. Thank you for the tweets. Thank you for the voicemails, although we don't get those very often. Um, we appreciate you guys listening, and your feedback is invaluable. You know, I, there's been since we've been kind of back on the regular. There's a, I get something at least something once a week, or someone's just saying, "Hey, we're glad you're back," and yeah. um, it means a lot because you don't know otherwise if people really care are they listening or not. I know they're listening because I see the downloads, but um, are they interested? Are they are they digging what we're dishing and and it seems it seems so so we're glad to do it and we were we're excited to continue the conversation with all of you on these interesting film music topics um so that's going to do it for this third reaction uh, episode and um we sure look forward to doing more in the very near future so any episode you'd like to react to doesn't have to be the last one we did going all the way back to number one um let us know what you think. Give us your comments. You can email us at soundcastertracksounds.com, speak pipe widget for the for you voicemailers, or hit us up on Twitter at tracksounds or on Facebook. Um, Eric, how can people send their comments to you directly if they want to leave me out of it and just go straight to you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you would do that, but I don't know. I'm afraid of Chris. What's he gonna say? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Sid and Sound Radio, Facebook at Cinematic Sound, and of course on the web at cinematicsound.net. 
And if for some reason you wanted to bypass Eric and go to straight to me, and not through Traxons, but my own personal Twitter, you could do that at C Coleman. So thanks again for listening for to this uh, third episode, our uh, reaction episode. Until our next one, we want to tell you all to keep it balanced.